my homecoming date who I went to the movie with got sick. Then I found out later she was not sick. She was just tired of the date. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Welcome to Blind Spotters, a movie podcast about the movies we've missed. I'm Zach Pockwhip. And I'm Amanda Luberto. And today we're doing a movie swap about a couple of Quentin Tarantino films. I watched Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2 for the first time, because that is one film. And Amanda, what did you watch? I watched Jackie Brown. But before we get to these QT films, uh, how are you doing, friend? What have you been watching? Doing good. Trying to keep cool. It is extraordinarily hot here in Arizona. I'm assuming it's also very unpleasant in Las Vegas. Yes. Um, We're breaking records with the amount of over 110 degree days we've got here. So I've mostly been staying inside. Um, About to go to LA. Very excited about that. But I have been watching a lot of television. And so I've only really seen a few movies. But what I have seen is two movies, The Barbenheimer I I didn't do them back to back because I had two tickets on two different days, but I have seen both of them and we'll talk more about it in a different episode. But Zach, have you also seen Barbenheimer? I did go see Barbenheimer. I saw Oppenheimer at 1215, had a great time, ran some errands, had a little nap, went to the theater to finish off the night with Barbie like a dessert and it was also a great time. And like you said, we'll talk about both those films and a bevy of others later. Glad we both got them. I can't I cannot wait to talk about them with you. Um, a movie that would fit very well into this show of I can't believe I had never seen this before was Footloose. I have literally oh. been in Footloose, but I had not seen the movie. So I'm Thrilled that I got it off my list. What a delightful film. I have uh, only seen 70% of the 2011 Footloose. Have you seen the original? I actually haven't. It's very fun. It's on Max. It's worth watching. The end like set design is like my favorite part of the film. Uh, it's it's really sweet. I think you should watch it. What I have been watching, like I said, is a lot of television. So I, I binged both seasons of The Bear very quickly. I will not get into it because I will not be able to stop. That sort of spiraled me into watching Shameless again. I've watched so much TV that I have watched the first eight seasons since finishing The Bear at the top of the month. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) So I've been watching a lot of television and no Isn't there like 13 seasons of Shameless? There's 11. um, And they're like... Just still insane. It's still way too many. But it's like 12 episodes a season. Um, Yeah. All right. What? How are you? What have you been up to? What have you been watching? I'm good. I'm tired. Recently had a couple of trips out of state to get away from the heat. Went to Washington to see our good friend Katie get married Yay, in Spokane. Katie. Popped over to Seattle, one of your favorite cities, to see my sister and her family, which was always a good time. But the movies I have seen in my own home and enjoyed very much. First of all, Kingdom of Heaven. Ridley Scott, 2005 epic war adventure film starring Orlando Bloom, uh, Eva Green, Edward Norton, among many others. Uh, Panned originally for the theatrical cut, and then he released the director's cut, which absolutely rips. Um, 10 out of 10 would recommend. I also uh, watched Past Lives, which came out this year, which was one of my more anticipated movies Mm -hmm. of 2023, and adored it. I wouldn't be shocked if it ended up 
in my top like three by the year's end, but we'll see. Hopefully there'll be a lot of stiff competition given the movies that are coming out for the rest of the year. And then I've been rolling through all the Mission Impossibles because uh, I'd like to watch Dead Reckoning at some point. Um, I'm sorry, Tom Cruise. I have not seen it in the theater yet. Uh, probably got pushed out of IMAX by Barbie and Oppenheimer, but I'm sure you'll find a way. Those movies are so much fun. I realized I'd only seen about half of them. And they're fun in the way that I honestly don't really remember what happens in any of them or what the plot is, but it's just a fun time because they go, they they run, they jump, they zoom, they crash. Um, and then Rebecca Ferguson shows up in the fifth one. And I didn't know she played the Reverend Mother before Dune, but it turns out she had. <laughs> I've only ever seen the first Mission Impossible and I really liked it. And I don't know why I never went back. But yeah, do you think if I go see the newest one, just still also on my list. Should I have watched all of the other ones? You don't like have to. Like I watched six without seeing four and five. Okay. And those are much more intertwined. Okay. I would say if you want bare minimum, if you want if you want some homework, watch five and six. Because I would like to see, like I'd love to see all of them eventually. But like if I have an opportunity to see the most recent one, before I get a chance to see all the other ones, I'm wondering, should I just take it or should I wait until I've seen them also? So it sounds like maybe some of them, yes, and then kind of revisit the rest. Amazing. All right, let's get to the movies we're swapping today. Yes. So you're, you took on some extra homework, but also maybe not extra homework, we'll discuss. Um, you watched Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2, and then I watched Jackie Brown, both of these movies are Quentin Tarantino movies, but I also think that these three movies specifically really get at what QT loves about making movies. We've got revenge, we've got black exploitation, we've got samurai films, we've got westerns in here. Like they're all kind of like these three together is like this is what kind of movie he makes. And I I thought it was really fun when we, I was re-watching Kill Bill and when I was watching Jackie Brown, like how well these movies actually fit together on top of just having the same writer-director. Did you feel the same while you were watching them? What, what stood out in terms of the pairing was I enjoyed the fact that these were back-to-back -back entries into his filmography. Um, Jackie Brown was his third film and then Kill Bill was his fourth and fourth asterisk film, depending on how you want to think about it. It's important to note, I did watch volume one and volume two and not the whole bloody affair, which is an option as well. Mm -hmm. um, Cause I have a life and I couldn't sit down for four hours. Um, but I would say that uh, it ca definitely captures the like first half of Quentin Tarantino, where as the latter half has been a little bit more like uh, put into period pieces and him trying to, maybe say something with his whole movies more often mm -hmm. than he did in his early days. Um, but it does capture all of the highs and lows of the Tarantino isms, I guess in his, in his filmography and directing style and writing style really. Yeah. I also thought it was noteworthy that even though Tarantino in later and earlier films does have prominent female characters, these are the only two films where, they like a, a a woman is the main character of the movie. Um, there is some conversation, I guess, for Inglorious Bastards, you could say, but there's also like three main characters of that film where Kill Bill is about the bride and Jackie Brown is about Jackie Brown. And like, I think that that was a, a good sort of accidental pairing as well. I think Jackie Brown is closer to 
the like central character being a woman but not really being the central character because like we spend the first like 10 15 minutes with samuel L. jackson that's true um in jackie brown but then the the story circulates around jackie brown just like how in glorious bastards it circulates around shoshana and mm-hmm. even like once upon a time in hollywood even though it's like a two-hander with margo in the passenger seat the movie kind of like spins around Margot robbie as well but kill bill is definitely like Uma Thurman's on the poster. She's the only person on the poster. It is about her. Yeah. It's about the bride. And um, that's about it. So that that is also a fun little aspect to this pairing. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Quentin before we get into our coin flip. So I wanted to know more. What is your relationship to Quentin Tarantino and his films? I'm interested to see if we have like a very similar one because we are about the same age. Um, Quentin Tarantino movies were presented as these movies are the good, cool movies that you're not allowed to see yet. That's how they were explained to me from my older siblings uh, when I was like seven or eight or nine. When you should not absolutely, or you, when you should absolutely not watch any of these movies. Um, but I distinctly remember when I was about, I think, thirteen or fourteen. My sister finally sat me down and said, "Here's Reservoir Dogs," um, and that kind of like, you know, as you'll hear anybody talk about their first Tarantino experience, kind of blows your mind, opens up your brain to what movies can be and could be and maybe should be in some aspects. Um, and since then, he's just kind of been, I wouldn't call him like a taste-making influence on my life, but I'm always intrigued as to what he has to say. And I find myself disagreeing with him a lot in a way that like I like to compare my own thoughts on uh, that topic with what he thinks because he's such a film geek, because he's so opinionated and strong-headed in that way. So when a Tarantino movie is coming out, uh, I consider it almost like uh, a special event or a national holiday because we're only going to get so many of them. I think he's just one of the bigger culture, like pop cultural figures and influences of the last few decades. And like whether or not you enjoy all of his films or do enjoy all of his films, I think it's kind of inescapable to get away from that influence that he has. So I feel like he's just like an omnipresent type force for me, if that makes sense. What about you? So I also watched Reservoir Dogs first, and I talked about this a little bit in our very first episode, the intro pod that we did two plus years ago now. Um, My boyfriend in high school, shout out to Aaron, watched Reservoir Dogs and was like, this movie blew my mind. We have to watch it. And I remember watching the film and watching the film and following along, and then it ends. And I was, I remember so clearly, like, looking up at him being like, wait, what? It's that's it's over? What happened? I don't start it again. And we literally just immediately rewatched it. <laughs> and it was one of those moments where I was like, I didn't know people could make movies like this. I didn't know films like this existed. And you and I have discussed at great length on this podcast, like because of my general interest in pop culture and arts and growing up in Arizona where you need to be inside all the time. And my mom is a big film person. Like I had watched a lot of like very artsy films. Like by this time I was like watching the Oscars every year, but I, there was something so visceral and like rugged about Tarantino that I had not really experienced at that point. And then I was all in. I mean, I was quite literally the film bro with the Pulp Fiction poster in my college apartment (laughs) and in my dorm room. Yeah. I think the feeling that we're like circulating 
is almost the same feeling I got when I first started listening to Tyler, the creator, which is like probably a lame <laughs> sentence, but there's like a veil pulled back visceral, like gnarliness to you know, Tyler's music, especially early and yeah. Quentin's movies, especially when you are a teenager and just finding out that, you know, you, you feel like you're getting away with something when you're watching a Tarantino movie at 12 or 13. Um, if you're raised a certain way. And so whenever there's like, you know, cuss words flying and blood splattering and squirting everywhere. You're like, hell yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I get to watch this grown up movie. Even though Quentin himself is like pretty like childish for better or worse um, in a lot of things. Um, it's like this, this excitement that you get because it's, it's like, it's unique for everything that means. Yeah. I had uh, I did not have older siblings, so I didn't have the like, you can't watch this. OK, now you're able to watch this. And I remember when I like first that summer, it was basically like right before senior year of high school and then like into college like that, like year and a half or whatever. I was just like, who is this guy? I need to watch all the movies that are available to me. I need to know who he is. And I remember my dad being like, why are you watching this? This These are not movies for girls and he was just like <laughs> and it wasn't the fact that like I, he's like a, a boy movie maker it was like why would you watch something so grotesque and violent and like rude it, you don't need to do that to yourself but I think that also like helped me lean in and be like no man I'm I like this, <laughs> this <movie's laughs> you're like fine good. I'll watch somebody else's films I'll watch David Fincher. Yeah. <laughs> um, so something that's really obvious about Tarantino and just the way that he is as a person, but also a movie maker, is that he loves films. He loves Los Angeles. He loves Hollywood. He loves the movie industry. Um, he's originally from Knoxville, Tennessee, but grew up in L.A., is very much L.A. He now owns movie theaters where he is trying to like single-handedly save the theater going experience. I mean, he was photographed doing the Barbenheimer double feature and it was like a big thing. And he is very, he is a movie geek who is smart enough and artsy enough to make movies himself. Um, he's also very famously said that he's only going to make 10 films. He, there is a, a 10 technicality on that Kill Bill is one film to him, volumes one and two. So he is on his word only made nine films, and then he's got a tenth one coming out. I think it's next year, the movie critic. I think I mean, it's, we'll see when that actually comes out because I'm assuming all the strikes are going to delay that. Yeah, everything's being, yeah, who knows? Um, but you know, as you were saying, he is a he's a hot button guy, he's got some controversies. I mean, I was looking through his Wikipedia, the controversies section has eight subsections. <laughs> He doesn't dice his words, even if you don't agree. I'll just say. <laughs> yes. And he's very passionate, which sometimes goes the wrong way. Uh, but he's a debatable figure more than I would say a straight up like controversial one. Yeah, that, that makes sense. that's a good way to put it. But I think what isn't controversial is that his movies are fucking good. And that people like to watch them. <laughs> Whether sure. he's like someone I'd want to get a beer with, you know, depends on the day. But will I watch everything that he makes? And is it, like you said, an event? Absolutely. On that note, I think we should get started. Let's flip a coin. My ass may be dumb, 
but I ain't no dumbass. You've watched Jackie Brown. What happens in this film? I really thought you were going to go with Lewis. I thought about it, but I was just going to frequently put that in every time you say Lewis. It's okay. going to be like a like a sound sound hit. All right. Here we go. Plot summary. So there's a lot of moving parts of the film, but I will attempt to get them all in the right order. So Jackie Brown, played by Pam Greer, is a flight attendant who is smuggling money out of Mexico and into the United States for gun runner Ordell Robbie, who's played by Samuel L. Jackson. One of Ordell's guys, Beaumont Livingston, played by Chris Tucker, is locked up. So Ordell hires a bail bondman named Max Cherry, played by Robert Forrester, to bail him out of jail. To ensure that he doesn't talk, Ordell kills Beaumont. Using information that Beaumont had already given them, an ATF officer and an LAPD officer intercept Jackie Brown with the cash, and there's also a bag of cocaine in there. She is arrested and then bailed out by Max Cherry. She meets Ordell in her apartment later and pulls a gun on him that she stole from Max's glove box. She says that she'll pretend to work with the authorities while still smuggling Ordell's money out over the border for him. So she's going to like double cross the authorities. Meanwhile, Ordell introduces Louis Garas, <laughs> played by Robert De Niro, into the fold. He is a career criminal, and he actually used to be Ordell's cellmate. Lewis hangs out with Melanie, while, who's just like a stoner friend. Um, they get high, and they hang out, and Melanie tries to convince Lewis to double-cross Ordell to keep the money for themselves. Everyone in the movie is basically like trying to figure out how they can get the money instead. Lewis tells Ordell, and he doesn't really seem to be bothered by this. Max and Jackie become very sweet on each other, all while she's cooking up a plan to deceive both Ordell and the officers for keeping the money for herself. On the day of the swap, Jackie brings in some of the money in a shopping bag that is mostly filled with books so that it's heavier. She has the majority of the money in her personal bag. When Lewis and Melanie swap it out, she gives them the bag with the less money and fills the extra shopping bag with a larger sum of cash. She leaves that bag in the dressing room for Max to grab after she has left. Jackie tells the officers that she was robbed and this is why she doesn't have the money. On the way back, Lewis gets frustrated with Melanie and kills her. Later that day, Ordell gets frustrated with Lewis for getting duped and kills him. Ordell tells Max, he kind of figures out that Max and Jackie are working together. Ordell tells Max that if Jackie doesn't give up the money, that he would kill both of them. Then the two of them devise a plan, and after holding Max at gunpoint, the officers come in and kill Ordell Robbie. The next day, Jackie and Max kiss, and Jackie leaves him behind. So that's essentially what happened, even though saying it out loud, it sounds like nonsense. But it is the plot of the movie. <laughs> I mean, it is nonsense, but yes, the plot is a little secondary in this movie, I feel. Yeah, the vibes are primary. Definitely. <laughs> All right. So aside from it being one of the only ones I hadn't seen, why did you pick this movie? Jackie Brown has become like cliche in the sense that it's usually chosen as Quentin's warmest and most mature film. And it's kind of like a reclamation or like it's like a reclaimed favorite. It's like the cool kids deep cut pick. Def um, definitely. Because this was such a move a, kind of away from Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. You know, this is the movie he comes out with next. And I think he was like 33 when he when he made this movie. And 
it is like the 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 Quintinness is a bit more toned down, but then you know, given his whole filmography that we have now, we can see like the stuff that would pop up later in terms of more character study, more um, incidents just brought together by people operating the way they would, uh, and less about you know whether it's revenge or um, you know just a violent nature of things. Uh, so I enjoy this film as Quentin almost playing against type. Um, but at the time, definitely playing against type. And I feel like Jackie Brown is so commonly named as the underrated Quentin that it has now become properly rated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, your favorite, Jason Concepcion, has this as his favorite Quentin movie. Um, so I figured you would enjoy that as well. But uh, for you, since this was your first time watching it, uh, what were those impressions? What stood out to you? So I just got to say right off the bat, before we get into acting and stylization and filmographies, I hated Samuel L. Jackson's beard ponytail so much (laughs) that I was honestly hoping that it was a part of the film so that someone would then later be cutting it off and that it would have a reason for being there. Do do you find it better or worse than Kurt Russell's mustache in Tombstone? Way worse. (laughs) (laughs) And I also hated Kurt Russell's mustache in Tombstone. (laughs) (laughs) I just, it wasn't doing anything for me. And it was very distracting at first. (laughs) But other than that, um, there are a ton of actors in this movie that I really wish Quentin had worked with again. So he's kind of, Famous, similar to like, um, I don't know, Scorsese or Wes Anderson, of course, of having these like grab bag of actors that he always works with. Samuel L. Jackson has appeared in six of his films, which on a technicality is the second most used actor, Zoe Bell, who is a stunt performer in three and an actor in four, technically has seven movies um, with Quentin Tarantino, but Obviously, Sam Jackson is in this movie, but there were some actors that I had not seen him ever work with that I would love to see him work with again. Got one movie left. <laughs> Let's bring it home, Quentin. Um, Pam Greer, Robert Forrester, Michael Keaton was like great in this movie as the ATF officer, and fucking Robert De Niro. Like, that to me is like an obvious Quentin Tarantino actor. And I had so much fun watching people that I had not seen in Tarantino films before play these parts. Yeah, it's definitely a fun grab bag. I forgot Keaton was in this movie, and I kind of also forgot that Robert De Niro was in this movie. Um, And it's funny because I think this movie comes like pretty close after Heat uh, for De Niro, and I'm sure we'll talk about him more. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do know if I remember if I remember right reading that De Niro and, and Tarantino didn't exactly mesh well or De Niro didn't exactly enjoy working with Tarantino interesting um, so maybe that's why but I would love them for them to sync back up um given that you know we saw Pacino show up in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and with a great one scene cameo so I'd love um uh, for De Niro to have the same I forgot about that that was so fun so um another thing I thought of was that and this will kind of go into my next few bullet points but It's really obvious what types of movies Tarantino is interested in and how much he's grown as a director and a writer since this movie. This is his third film. Like you said, it's sort of the most off character of his movies. I can tell like how much he's grown since he's made this movie, but that like 
inspiration is still throughout all of the films that he makes. Yeah, for sure. I think I think Quentin's a master of stealing shots or stealing ideas in a good way where he could probably tell any actor like if you ask him like hey why do you want me to turn left in this way he's like all right there's a 1954 german film called this Mm -hmm. and in this scene when so-and-so turns that's how i want it to look because he has watched everything and he has an opinion on everything he knows exactly what he likes he's a true student of film exactly and you know uh I think that pours through for better and worse through his film zone. I mean, we'll talk about it more. I mean, you, you have to talk about it with any Quentin movie, but with, with Kill Bill, like I could just go frame by frame and you could find references um, to, to different movies. So uh, it, it's a testament to him, though, that like you can submerge your movie in references and an inspiration and it doesn't get weighed down or feel soggy or feel like just a copy and paste of these things, that it does feel um fitting and unique and um like stylistic flair instead of just a cover yeah absolutely um so i wanted to keep this bullet point for last because it also goes into the next category but something that was really made obvious to me as i was watching this film is that while i do have a good understanding of tarantino's filmography i really don't have a good understanding of black exploitation films is a huge blind spot I knew enough of the tropes because there's enough movies that are like quote unquote modern day black exploitation films that I've seen that I understood the influence, but it really is a genre I don't know that much about. Um, So that was a big thing that I was learning in my research and while watching this movie. So in case there's anybody else who doesn't know much about it. Uh, black exploitation is a subgenre of crime film that emerged in the U.S. during the early 70s. It was a term that was coined in August 1972 by the president of the Beverly Hills Hollywood NAACP branch. He claimed that the genre was proliferating offenses to the black community and its perpetuation of stereotypes often involved in crime. The genre does rank among the first after the race films of the 1940s and 60s in which black characters and communities were often the main characters and the subjects of film and television rather than the sidekicks, the antagonists, or victims of brutality. Um, This genre coincides with the sort of rethinking of race relations in the 1970s, which makes a lot of sense with a lot of things like the Black Panther movement rising up during the 70s that something like black exploitation would also become very popular at the time and put black actors in the forefront of these films but i understand the idea that like maybe they didn't want them all to be exploitation films and like what does that mean but i think it's also really interesting to note that pam greer who plays jackie brown is like a pioneer of black exploitation films Like when you do research on it, she's listed as like one of the key figures. We'll definitely talk more about it, but I thought it was brilliant and like a true testament of Tarantino being a film student for life of him being like, no, I don't want someone to act like Pam Greer. I want fucking Pam Greer in my movie. This is going to make it so obvious what I'm trying to do. If you want to go check out more movies uh, to understand this, like Shaft is a real popular one. Um, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song is a popular one. 
Um, and when I say Shaft, I mean from 1970s, not the 2000 remake with Samuel L. Jackson, uh, which was also a successful film. And then there's some post black exploitation movies that were also popular, including Jackie Brown. Um, the Last Dragon is a personal favorite um, and fun one. And then if you just want to see like a biopic of that time, watch Dolomite Is My Name, mm-hmm. um, starring Eddie Murphy as Rudy Ray Moore. But yeah, like there, there's definitely like anything uh, in black culture and black history. They definitely like took a um, a box they were put in and made it their own. And a lot of great films and a lot of great movie stars were in there. And it was cool um, to learn the way that Pam Greer's uh, career like was rejuvenated because of Jackie Brown. Um, kind of similar to how uh, Quint, Quentin rejuvenated John Travolta's career in the 90s with uh, with Pulp Fiction. So um, it's definitely cool. What else have you thought about the most since watching since, you know, that kind of dovetailed into that? One of the main criticisms of Tarantino is his exuberant use of the N-word. And most of the criticism comes because he is often the writer of his films and he is, he is a white man and people feel very uncomfortable even though he is all, almost always having black characters use the N-word at the end of the day, like how many times can a white writer write it without it being uncomfortable? This is sort of the controversy. This is the conversation. Um, at the time, until Django Unchained totally blew it out of the water, um, this was the movie that used the N-word of Tarantino's the most. It's 38 times. Um, unlike Django Unchained, it is only used by black actors and characters in this movie. Um, but that is a criticism, a quick criticism of Tarantino's filmography that you hear often and I think is bullet point number one in the Wikipedia controversies section um, and something that became really obvious to me while I was watching it. I was like, oh, class- classic Tarantino. Um, <laughs> but that was just... I didn't understand that this was sort of the origin of a lot of the uncomfortability with his writing and racial slurs. And that was a new thing that I learned. Yeah. And, you know, I think Spike Lee was one of the um, biggest uh, critics of that for understandable reasons. And it's uh, interesting, this like kind of not of two minds thing, but like he loves films, and so he and so he also loves black exploitation films. But is he the guy to make a like a black exploitation film, re, like reincarnate? I don't know. Yeah, like, it's probably above, not. It's above me. <laughs> like, like probably not. Um, but is this like a great film? And did he give Pam Greer and Samuel Jackson like two leading roles that are like awesome? Also, yes. Uh, neither of us are black. I don't know how to feel about it. Yeah, it, it's not for me to feel, I guess. It's just something I knew about him. And then in watching this movie, I was like, oh. Moving on, I really liked Robert Forrester in this movie. He is so tender, which you don't always get a very, like, sweet character, like a soft character in a Tarantino film. You'll get very sweet and soft moments. I always think about, like, the little girl telling Leo DiCaprio that he's doing great and like what a good moment that is. Or even there's moments of Kill Bill where you're you're just so awe inspired by the bride and her her love for her whole family before everything goes down, which is very evident in volume two, things like that. He knows how to do tender, but it is not something I always associate with Quentin Tarantino characters. And I was just really 
Uh, I really enjoyed that about the Robert Forrester performance. Do you have a relationship with Robert Forrester? So my main relationship with Robert Forrester is his role as the head coach of the LA Knights in the world-renowned film Like Mike. (laughs) His character is like, I can't tell if... I know he's not a good guy. And like, I don't feel like icky about him. Like, it seems like him and Jackie Brown actually have like, not feelings, but like chemistry. Yeah. Um, Or Jackie Brown is just really charming and knows how to charm a guy to help her. But it was fun to see uh, their interactions and and him just kind of shrug his way through all these schemes. Mm -hmm. Like, he's just he's like, okay, I'll be a I'll be a pawn in this, but I actually kind of know what's going on. Um, I love the moment um, where uh, Ordell is like, you you listen to this band since when? And he's like, yeah, I love this band. <laughs> and it's like the one that Jackie's been playing earlier in the movie is very sweet. So Max Cherry going to the mu- like the not the record shop, the what are the music store to pick up a cassette of the album that him and Jackie Brown were talking about might be the most romantic thing Quentin Tarantino has ever put on film. I agree. <laughs> And also, my first instinct was, what a doofus. <laughs> no! <laughs> well, because I'm also, because I'm a boy, and so I'm going to be like, ha, feeling. Lame. <laughs> um, what else have you thought about since watching? So the soundtrack is perfect. And yeah. I this is something that Tarantino does so well. It's quite famous in Pulp Fiction. Like, he just knows how to pick music that is the perfect tone for the film. I thought it really like paced the movie really well. It kept things going when we needed to. There's, I mean, the ver- the opening shot of her walking on the escalator or whatever, and the, the song is at the back. Like it's paced to the, she's walking to the pace of the song. It's just, it's really great. I love when that kind of stuff happens. Um, and then I only wanted to bring this up because we talked about young De Niro versus young Pacino last time. And I said, <laughs> no, 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 older De Niro. That's the that's the money. Um, despite being very trigger sensitive, <laughs> 50s stoner De Niro was really doing something. <laughs> Just got to say, great work. Kept taking bong rips. Great bong, also. Very, it has a little handle. I yeah. was very Is that impressed. a bong or is that a bubbler? I guess on a technicality, it might be a bubbler because I don't think the little piece came out. Okay. I feel like this is your ideal De Niro. <laughs> Except <laughs> like for other the than... shooting me in the parking lot section. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm just into don't bother it. him. <laughs> All right, so... I know we've already talked about a bunch of stuff you've looked up, but what are some of the other first things you looked up about this movie? Yeah. So because it, like you were talking about earlier, it is sort of the cool kids response for what is your favorite Tarantino movie? So much so that now it is almost expected to be people's Tarantino film. I wanted to know, like, was it always this way? Did people always really like it? Um, It was a Christmas Day release, which is very fun to me. Um, I love finding out which movies were released on Christmas Day. I feel like 30 years down the line when people are like, people are going to be like, Uncut Gems? Really? We just put that on on Christmas? (laughs) And I'll say, I was there Christmas Day. Yes, we did. Um, (laughs) I think same. It finished fifth at the box office on opening weekend, which is pretty solid. Eventually, worldwide, it made $74.7 million, which is about six times the budget of the film. So that's a win across all boards, even if it wasn't as 
popular as Pulp Fiction nor um, Kill Bill, which like sandwiched this movie, it definitely isn't a a dud in any sort of way. Like we always like to do, I wanted to know if it had won any awards. Um, Robert Forrester was nominated for Best Supporting Actor as Max Cherry. He did not win. He lost to Robin Williams in Goodwill Hunting, which is pretty good. Yeah, I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, that's <laughs> we're pretty good. <laughs> so, <laughs> do you know the Best Actress nominees this year? Because I like because Pam Grier is awesome. I know it's like shocker. Like Pam Grier is awesome, and Quentin Tarantino is awesome. So, like you put them together, you should get something awesome. So, Best Lead Actress. Yes. Is that what we're looking at here? Okay, so Helen Hunt won for As Good As It Gets. Um, also nominated was Kate Winslet in Titanic, Judy Dench in Mrs. Brown, playing Queen Victoria. So I feel like Judy Dench playing an old dead queen is like always going to get a nominee. Um, Julie Christie in Afterglow and Helena Bottom Carter in The Wings of the Dove, which are two movies I'm not familiar with, so... Um, now let's get Pam Greer in there instead. Yeah, I love Helena, but you got you got time down the road. Don't worry, girlfriend. <laughs> you just put put other people in here. What a yeah. fucking year for movies. We've got yeah, Boogie Nights. Titanic. We've got Goodwill Hunting. We've got L.A. Confidential. We've got Titanic. We've got Jackie Brown. Like, there's so many movies that came out this year. As good as it gets, the Full Monty. Like, so much came out this year. Uh, we had it so good. Wow. <laughs> All right. So what else did you look up? So because I didn't know much about black exploitation as a subgenre, I clearly didn't know much about Pam Greer. Um, she is an actor I only knew because of Jackie Brown, um, but she had had a huge career before this. She had been acting since the 1970s um, and is, like I said, considered a key figure in the black exploitation genre. She's had a few very famous boyfriends and lovers over the years. Um, most famously probably is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And there's a few other like high profile people that she's dated. And as I was reading more about it, all of them sort of end when she asks them to like level the fuck up and then they don't. And then she's like, okay, goodbye. <laughs> That's how like so many, or they ask her to like do something very uncharacteristic and then she's like no i'm not going to do that and then she's not with them anymore for example like uh kareem abdul jabbar proposed to pam gear and gave her this ultimatum that she needed to convert to islam and basically was like i'm going to marry somebody else at two this afternoon if you do not convert because this other woman converted for me and she basically was like, no. <laughs> and then Kareem Abdul-Jabbar married somebody else. It's fucking nuts. <laughs> That's crazy. She famously dated Freddie Prince and was he proposed and she was like, you are a drug addict. I do not feel like this is comfortable. And then they broke up. She stayed in touch and he died of an overdose. Like there's so many like interesting people that she has been with over the years my, my favorite note is how she in her memoir said that she had cocaine entered into her system because of her relationship with richard pryor because of having <laughs> sex with richard pryor like it's yeah. crazy yeah so like things like that she just has like such a full life where she i don't know kind of stands her ground and then you know maybe she's there 
gets married, but she has all these cool relationships. Um, but most famously, something that I noted was that um, in 1988, she was diagnosed with cervical cancer and was given 18 months to live, um, but has actually been in remission ever since and is alive and, and well. So that's always wonderful. Yes. Yes. Just to Pam Greer. Yeah, she seems fucking cool. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely a, a filmography and just a kind of a history to dive into. Um, there's some run-ins with uh, Wilt Chamberlain as well in her life. So mm-hmm. uh, if you're crossing paths with Wilt at any point in your life, you probably have a story to tell. <laughs> so the last thing I looked up is about a scene between Melanie and Lewis and it's this idea, does coughing actually get you higher? So Lewis coughs while he's smoking, and Melanie said that's totally fine. It opens up your capillaries, and then you get higher, so like let it happen. <laughs> it's so funny, because as I was watching this, I was like, once upon a time in Hollywood, <laughs> uh, Leo DiCaprio pointing meme. I was like, I've always said that. <laughs> I was like, I have no proof, but I have always thought the same thing. Um, So it is and it isn't. There's no real scientific proof to it. But basically what happens is when you're coughing, your brain gets a lack of oxygen. This is also at the same time that you're inhaling THC. And so you get like a drop in blood pressure and you get lightheaded. And all of this sort of like ascends with the THC at the same time that gives you a higher feeling because you basically are losing oxygen to your brain because <laughs> you're coughing. Sick. So <laughs> it is and it isn't. Um, so I just thought that was like a fun a fun fact. <laughs> I did actually think about that as well. I'm like, man, I wonder if that's true or if that's just some bullshit, but um seems like it's both. Yeah. It, yeah. It's like it's true, but not really true. <laughs> you feel <laughs> higher, but you're not actually getting higher. It's just because you're coughing. <laughs> Um, do you have any other questions about this movie? Yeah, the only one I have for you really is when did you see this movie compared to other Tarantino films? We both started with Reservoir Dogs, but where did this sort of line up? I saw it in the lead up to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because I had heard, you know, from writers and critics and whatever that a lot of them were comparing it to Jackie Brown because of its laid back nature and because of its character study nature. Um, so I, I checked it out beforehand and absolutely loved it. Nice. All right. Do you have any questions for me? I feel like we kind of got them all, but you might have some remaining comments we haven't gone over. Um, Questions for you. The only question I have is like, what's your thoughts on screwdrivers? I'm not opposed. I don't really like vodka that much. Um, yeah. So I don't really drink a lot of vodka, but I, yeah, I've been known to have a screwdriver or two in my day. Yeah. I was in college once. Um, other notes on Jackie Brown. Uh, this is a Quentin Tarantino staple, but just uh, I feel like in Jackie Brown, it was subtly great cinematography. Um, the way he uses like the nighttime shadows, the way uh, the camera will whip around just for a scene at uh, Ordell's apartment. Like he'll just have the camera facing the door and then the characters move through the room. And all of a sudden, you know, they go to the other side and him and Jackie Brown are going to have an argument out on the patio. So instead of cutting, he takes the camera and swoops it all around uh, the apartment for, like, fun. Um, or even just, like, the one shot of Ordell walking into the cockatoo. It doesn't need to be a continuous shot following him into the bar, but it is, and it's fun. 
and it's more fun because of it. So mm -hmm. um, that subtly great cinematography, I think, is um, something I really appreciated on this watch. Um, and then lastly, I love that this is a movie about people who suck at their job. <laughs> it is. It, and it's low stakes. Like, Ordell's trying to get his life savings out of Mexico, and it's half a mil. And he's like, I can just travel the world on that. Jackie Brown is risking her life for, like, 50 grand. Um, and, you know, everybody, like, screws it up. Like, Ordell loses control of one of his women and has to rely on the stoner girl that he stays with. Um, uh, Louis, Louis shoots a woman for no reason, just because he was annoyed, and he lost the car. Uh, in the in the mall parking lot, who among us? Um, just all these little slip ups uh, throughout the thing kind of give this movie a humaneness that I don't think Tarantino has really touched on as much for the rest of his filmography. Yeah, I completely agree. All right, would you watch this movie again? Sure, why not? I'm sure when the yeah. when the next one comes out, the tenth and final, I'll probably watch them all in order. Um, I don't find myself like returning to a lot of Tarantino films, even as a serial rewatcher. Um, I really have to be in the right headspace and the right mood to watch a Tarantino film. But obviously, this one is significantly less violent than a lot of the other ones. So maybe it'll be um, easier on rotation um, than the other ones. Yeah. All right. So if people liked this movie or they want to watch more movies similar to this, what do you suggest? All right, so first, if you want more Pam Greer in your life, go back and watch Coffee and Foxy Brown. Um, and then if you enjoy those, you can continue to dive down her 70s because they were prolific um, and awesome. Uh, after that, uh, I really think you should watch True Romance, which is another uh, crime-adjacent movie with people who are not great at their jobs, starring Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette. Um, written by Quentin Tarantino, but directed by Tony Scott. So it's a little fun to see tarantino as just a cog in the machine um also has one of the best uh, james gandolfini performances as well mm -hmm. and then lastly uh, if you want to see another elmore leonard adaptation as jackie brown is a adaptation of his novel rum punch watch out of sight steven soderbergh's 1998 crime comedy starring george clooney and jennifer lopez ever heard of him and it also shows for like a scene michael keaton as the same character as he plays in Jackie Brown, Ray, Nicolette, because this is the same universe. Um, Miramax didn't want that to be allowed, but Quentin was like, nah, do it. Let them do it. It's cool. Very cool. So, Love um, that. Just for that little bit. And also because that's a sleek, sexy crime uh, movie as well. Yeah. Excellent. Good choices. Sweet. You did it. Nice. Ready to go take on the Deadly Vipers and the Crazy 88? I literally cannot wait to talk about that scene. <laughs> it's going to be so good. Let's take a break before we talk about a haul of a film. This episode is not sponsored by Vegas Analog. If you're a film photographer like Amanda and I are, Vegas Analog is a must visit. They're always stocked up on 35mm and medium format film, as well as a great selection of prints, postcards, and more featuring local work from local artists in the area. I love popping into Vegas Analog anytime I'm in downtown Vegas to pick up a couple rolls of film, browse their camera selection, and maybe ask a couple questions to their super helpful staff. If you're looking to get into film photography or if you need some equipment for yourself, make sure you pop in there and always remember to support your local businesses. 
Zach, you and I have unfinished business. You watched Kill Bill 1 and 2. What did you think? Tell me what happened in these two slash one film. Let's hope that business is never finished. Um, all right. <laughs> Kill Bill volumes 1 and 2, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Ever heard of them? Volume 1 opens with a scene showing a pregnant woman, uh, who we come to know as the bride, played by Uma Thurman, being shot by a man named Bill. We flash forward, and the bride shows up at the home of Renata Green, played by Vivica A. Fox, a former assassin who played a part in the assassination attempt on the bride. Um, she was a part of this group called the Deadly Vipers, and we learned that the bride is also a former Deadly Viper as well. After a fight, the bride kills Green and then tells Green's daughter to find her if she's still mad about it when she is older. We then flash back to the cream to the crime scene where we see the carnage uh, at this wedding venue, and two cops find the bride barely alive. She's taken to the hospital where L Driver, played by Daryl Hannah, goes to finish off the bride. But before she kills her, Bill calls and aborts the mission because he feels like it's inhumane to kill the bride while she is defenseless, as, again, she is in a coma. Flash forward four years, and the bride wakes up to learn that she is no longer pregnant and is devastated, and that her body has been getting used and sold off to creeps to use at their liking. Also terrifying. She kills the men responsible, takes the man's car keys, and in that truck which is labeled Pussy Wagon, starts to rehabilitate herself. We then cut to an animated origin story to tell Oren Ishii, who is played by Lucy Liu's origin story, and the path that led her to becoming, one, a deadly viper, and then two, the Yakuza like ultimate boss in Japan. We flash back forward, <laughs> and the bride visits Okinawa to see Hattori Hanzo, a legendary sword maker. Although he is hesitant and retired, and his made a blood oath to never make a sword again, he agrees to make the bride a sword once she says that she wants to kill Bill. The bride tracks Oren to a restaurant and then proceeds to kill her team of assassins who are known as the Crazy 88 before squaring off with Oren in a snowy garden. She kills Oren and the bride rides off with Oren's assistant and like kind of dumps her at the hospital after you know cutting her arm off as she does. And the movie ends with Bill asking Oren's assistant, whose name is Sophie, if the bride knows... Her daughter is alive. Gasp. What a film. Intermission, just like the old school films, like in 1940, whatever the fuck. Except that this is a six-month intermission. On to volume two. <laughs> the movie opens, showing us the assassination attempt on the bride. Just before the attempt, the bride and Bill, who is played by David Carradine, have a conversation where we learn that they once had a romantic relationship and he is not exactly happy with her new life. We cut back to the present where we meet Bill's brother, Bud, who is played by Michael Madsen, another former Deadly Viper who now works as a bouncer at a strip club. The bride shows up to kill Bud, but he susses her out and then captures her and chooses to bury her alive. Uh, he then calls L to sell the bride's Hanzo sword for a million dollars because those things are, quote unquote, priceless. We flash back to the bride and Bill, and they're around a campfire where Bill is prepping the bride to train under Pai Mei, who is played by Gordon Liu, an old martial arts master. There, the bride learns how to hone her skills, which she uses to help break herself out of the coffin. Meanwhile, and this is back in, I guess, present time, Elle shows up to buy the bride's sword, and she double-crosses Bud, courtesy of a black mamba, which she hid into the suitcase of a million dollars, which is also the bride's codename. Before Elle leaves, the bride ambushes her in Bud's trailer in the two fight. We learn that Elle was also trained under Pai Mei, and she lost her eye while training with him because she was being disrespectful. And then she also admits to murdering Pai Mei out of spite. 
This pisses off the bride. So the bride takes out Elle's good eye. And so now she's blind and leaves her screaming in the trailer. The bride, whose name we learn is Beatrix Kiddo, tracks Bill down in Mexico. When she finds him, she is shocked to see her daughter, Bibi, played by Perla Haney Jardine, with him. After spending time with her daughter and putting her to bed, Beatrix goes out to talk to Bill and Bill shoots her with truth serum to start interrogating her. Here we learn that Beatrix left the deadly vipers upon learning she was pregnant, hoping to give Bibi a better life. Bill was pretty unhappy with the life Beatrix chose and ordered the hit on her. The two finally fight after a long conversation, but it's a quick one as Beatrix uses Paimé's five-point palm-exploding heart technique, which he almost never taught his pupils but did teach to Beatrix. Bill takes five steps and dies, and Beatrix takes off with BB, hopeful to start a new and happy chapter in her life. And that is the whole bloody affair. You did it! That was great. Let me tell you, summing up a movie that jumps in time all the, all, constantly is a task. Yeah. So why don't you tell me why you picked this movie? <laughs> so especially in his most recent films, you know, you think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or Inglorious Bastards or even uh, Django Unchained. Tarantino is known for his revenge stories, his revisionist history of this is how it should really go down. And I feel like while it isn't revisionist history, Kill Bill is a revenge story through and through. And I feel like a lot of it starts here. Um, it is also Uma Thurman's best role. I, she's very good in Pulp Fiction. I think she's quite iconic in Pulp Fiction, but she is she is the bride. And um, also, if he has three influences between Westerns, exploitation films, and samurai films, this is, this is the latter. We're in that... Um, what's the, is Kung Fu movie a proper verbiage? Yeah. Okay. This is definitely in his like Kung Fu movie bag and what he wanted to do from a movie he's, from a genre of movie he's obviously obsessed with. For sure. And I also knew that you liked those types of movies. So I wanted to make sure that you liked, that you saw this. Thanks, but I, I think it's funny that you picked the action beat em up movie and I picked the talky crime one. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's like we know each other. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. So what were your first impressions while watching and what stood out? I mean, like any Tarantino movie, even from the opening credits, man, he loves his stylish homages and flourishes. Um, the camera work, the sound cues, the uh, changes of aspect ratio, the changes of color tone. Everything feels like and is an homage to something. And crucially, more than that, it all works. Um, it's not just style for style's sake. Um, there is substance, even if this movie doesn't have a lot of story to it. I think Roger Ebert said it's like it's storytelling, but like there's not much story to tell. It's it's just a revenge film, but he does it um, so concisely and stylistically. Um, so clearly inspired by, you know, Japanese cinema, like like Kurosawa films, among others, Chinese cinema, Kung Fu cinema, spaghetti westerns, black exploitation, like you were saying, like anything you could go to the like a theater to see playing on a reel from like 1965 to 1981, uh, and obsessively watch mm-hmm. is in this film, and like it, you know, everybody knows Tarantino's like lore and backstory as a video store worker, and like these are exactly the kinds of films that a certain type of video store guy. I think would recommend, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we grew up like toward the tail end of like the blockbuster thing, but like 
we still did go pick up those VHSs or DVDs to take home and rent and whatnot. Um, you know, when the bride goes to talk to Bill in volume two, like that's the searcher's shot with John Wayne or um, there's a lot of Lady Snowblood in this with the mm-hmm. credit sequence, with the chapters. Um, so there's just, it's just oozing with not only like fake blood, but also style. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing that stood out is uh, the fact that RZA did the soundtrack is fucking sick. I, Shout out to the Wu-Tang Clan. I cannot wait to talk about the sound <laughs> of this movie. I don't know if you want to do it here, but it is one of my favorite parts of this film. The soundtrack. No, let's, sa- let's save Amanda's sound corner. Okay. <laughs> we'll get to it all. All right. The other thing I like obviously stood out was the splitting of the film into two volumes um, because it couldn't be a four hour film. Um, Tarantino sees it as one film split it into two because of the length, like I said. And so I just wanted to like it was just kind of absorbing the story. Um, I gave myself like a day between films instead of watching them all in one go um, just to give myself some semblance of like uh, sitting with and letting volume one simmer Mm -hmm. um, within my brain before going on to volume two. Um, And in that, I feel like volume one felt more like a tribute to Japanese cinema. I mean, you have the anime sequence um, with Oren's origin story, but also just um, the different Kurosawa samurai films like Yojimbo or Seven Samurai. Um, right down to like the blood squirting every time she slices off. Uh, so good. An arm or a head is sliced. Uh, that's Japanese cinema right there. Um, and then volume two felt more like that spaghetti western, felt more like those Chinese martial arts films um, in terms of like uh, lots of quiet conversations before explosive action, um, the training sequence with Pai Mei, uh, just all these things that were maybe a little slower, not as dynamic, but brought the whole film and story together and kind of uh, fleshed out a lot of the like visceral action that came and like pretty much filled out volume one. Yeah, I it is interesting. So I had seen obviously both of these movies before, but I didn't rewatch them since I had seen them. And they were films I had thought a lot about um since seeing it a few years ago probably like i probably watched them in college so oh maybe a decade ago um but it is interesting upon rewatch like how stylistically like on the surface those two like volumes seem so different but like underneath they are exactly the same like it is very easy to say like oh the first one is like a a samurai movie and the second one is a western it's like yeah but like those types of movies are also the exact same type of movie so i i did find it interesting um re-watching it this time having a deeper understanding of cinema um that they weren't as different as they might seem on the surface yeah and like just watching them and considering them as one story it makes more sense uh like the choices that are made in volume two um, where it's not as explosive uh, as, as volume one, like you're not going to top the crazy 88 sequence. And like, I forget which filmmaker talked about it, but it's like after you have the big moment, like in Oppenheimer after you spoiler, I guess for Oppenheimer, if you haven't seen it, like skip ahead 30 seconds. Um, But after you have the Trinity test, like you can't top that moment. Yeah. And so you just have to go smaller. 
Which is also why people find the third hour of Oppenheimer to be boring, even though I, I don't know if that's correct, but that's why people are feeling that way. So just so many references. We've talked about it already, but um, Roger Ebert said, quote, for QT, he literally put QT, um, quote, for QT, all shots, in a sense, are references to the other shots, end quote. <laughs> which, yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, like in Jackie Brown, the opening credits scene is the graduate. Yeah. Um, the, the old jumpsuit that Uma Thurman wears is referenced to Bruce Lee in The Game of Death. Um, it literally uh, opens quoting a, quote, old Klingon proverb. We all know that Tarantino was flirted with directing Star Trek. Uh, Hattori Hanzo plays a character of the same name in an old Japanese movie called Shadow Warriors. Um, and then one of my other favorites that I learned upon researching uh, is when Bill and the bride are talking outside of her wedding venue. Uh, and Bill says, mind if I meet this fella? I'm a little particular about who my gal marries. Is a line lifted straight from Cary Grant's mouth in his Girl Friday. Yeah. Blind spotters pod references. <laughs> Boom. The seven degrees of blind spotters. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is the most obvious thing about both of these films that we're talking about today is that like, QT just puts it all on the page. He's like, these are the movies I like. These are the things that influence me. I'm going to put my spin on it. I'm going to do it my way. But like, I've like, he probably watched his seven, seven samurais. It was like, I want to make that movie and then makes kill bill. Like it's not that hard. And like the thing is too, with Tarantino movies is like, they're like, uh, like older rap albums when like the same, or I guess even now, but when like the sampling is so heavy that it's like, this like eighth of a, a, a note from a baseline from this like 70s disco song is in my music so i need to reference it like i need to credit it like the liner notes on tarantino movies are insane just because he does like he'll say like this was that shot this was that shot i learned this from this great you know italian filmmaker or whatever um because again like we've said he's a fucking film nerd um so what have you thought most about Kill Bill since you finished watching it? The bride in general, uh, as a character, as a conceit, as an idea developed by Quentin Tarantino and Uma Thurman. I thought it was fun that the movie says, based on the character of the bride, created by Q and U. I saw that and I was like, I wonder. And, you know, of course, correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, they developed this character while... Uh, they work together on Pulp Fiction. I read actually that um, Uma Thurman pulled from Pam Greer's performance in Coffee and Gina Rowland's performance in Gloria because, quote, they were two of the only women she had ever seen uh, be women while holding a weapon. That's badass. Which is cool and also a tie into, uh, once again, tying these movies together in a way. Yeah. And upon further reading, um, I know this is all stepping on research, but whatever. Uh Learned that originally the bride was part of Shoshana's character in Glorious Bastards. Like the whole revenge. Oh, interesting. That makes sense. Tarantino was going to have her be like an assassin, um, but instead lifted it for this movie. Because he was writing Bastards before he wrote Kill Bill, I guess. Um, So wild. Reworked Shoshana um, into what she was. Other thing I thought about the most, I mean, in volume one, it's the set piece of all set pieces. It's the bride versus the crazy 88s. I mean, damn. Uh, first of all, Lucy Liu. 
fuck yeah, Lucy Lou. I will let you continue, but I just want to say it really became cemented for me in rewatching it that I believe that chapter five, which is the bride versus crazy eights to the end of the film is the best directing Tarantino has ever done. There were some shots Mm. in there where I was like, I don't actually know how he did that. And I have watched a boatload of films and I've watched (laughs) all of his films. Like there were just so many sequences in there that it was, it was mesmerizing, not only because of the physicality of Uma Thurman and later on Lucy Liu as well, but also just camera movements and the choreography of her versus the 88, even though they're not all, there's not actually 88 of them, all that kind of stuff. Um, I think it is just one of the most jaw dropping scenes in film. And I think it is definitely his best sequence in anything that he's ever made. That's that's quite a claim. It's I can't so, disagree. It's so good. I mean, it's so impressive because it's all practical. You know, it's all wires. It's all like uh, like condoms full of fake blood or like like old yeah. school style. Like uh, everything is done practically, and that created this necessity for imagination and creativity, right? And also, the theater must have lost its fucking mind yes. when it switched to black and white. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, it's so surreal. It's also so fitting. Um, it also watching this movie after watching Oppenheimer and it switching between black and white and color was a, <laughs> the whole different experience. Um, but even just like the lighting was an homage to old Kung Fu films, like mm-hmm. when she's like hyper backlit walking through the doors. Um, it's all so stylized, but none of it really takes away from the action. It almost makes it better because like that or else that'd be so bloody. Yeah. It like, <laughs> I mean, you see the aftermath after it like enhances the scenes. Yeah, it's kind of kind of now that we talk about it, kind of like in reference to Psycho, like in, in that mm, being in black mm-hmm. and white, um, in part because, you know, the many obstacles that Hitchcock put out there for himself, but also so he could make the violence more stomach, like the audience stomach the violence more. I don't think that's why Tarantino did the black and white. I think he did it more so to reference the old um, Kung Fu and Japanese movies, um, but it was still like sick. <laughs> it's so good. And to have like, just a inserted sequence of animation, but it doesn't really take you out of the film. And it still is like consistent with the stylization of the rest of the movie, even though the rest of the movie is not animated. It just is like really remarkable how he's able to do that. And I don't know if you notice like the, I think it's the very first, if not, it's the second credit as the credits are rolling is to the animator like and that's like his thing like he knows he would be nowhere without the people who inspire him and the people he works with that sequence was directed by kazuto nakazawa produced by production ig which also had produced ghost in the shell um, which is an iconic anime film the other thing i thought a lot about was in volume two the bride verse l fuck yeah Bitch, you have no future. I mean, I've always had the whistle stuck in my head because of, uh, I forget what rap song it was that came out when we were in college. That scene is like as impressive as the crazy 88 scene, even though it's just condensed into a trailer. It's like raw and visceral and gnarly. And then she takes her fucking eye out and then she steps on it with her bare character grabbing someone's eye out and then dropping it and then crushing it with their bare feet. 
is the most Quentin Tarantino shit. Mm-hmm. Right down to Uma Thurman's barefoot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you could fill minutes of shots of Uma Thurman's She was feet. just trying to make her big toe move. She did. It's very impressive. Yeah, she did. Um, but that fight was sick. Uh, I love <laughs> that she... <laughs> yeah, so anyway, that fight was fucking sick. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> her talking about how that snake venom is like going through bud oh like, yeah her reading a wikipedia page basically oh bitch it's so good <laughs> yeah daryl hannah um fucking crushed it um i forgot to write this in the outline but i uh, also been thinking about the bride or i guess beatrix at that point and bill finally coming face to face and it being such a, a good scene very quiet group of scenes mm-hmm the bride is not sympathetic, but then Beatrix is because then you learn what she lost and you meet her daughter and you see all that. Um, but I loved how quick the fight was. Like 20 seconds, maybe 15 seconds. Um, and it was over. And like when you're building up to kill Bill to the t- titular moment, it's cool to make that like the smallest fight of the entire saga mm-hmm. because there is nothing else like that closure has been met. Um, and the last thing is for her to exact her revenge so she can get on with her life. Especially now that she has like something to live for when she meets her daughter. Yeah. All right. So the other thing I've thought about a lot is just Uma Thurman and her career. Um, she has been uh, often cited as Quentin Tarantino's muse. Um, she did infamously have a bad experience on this set which she wrote about in, I think, 2016 or 17, um, talking about how she was made to feel kind of unsafe on set because Tarantino was really pushing her to drive this car that did not seem like a safe uh, situation and ended up uh, in the car crash, like injuring her neck and her knees. Um, She also, unfortunately, was uh, assaulted by Harvey Weinstein, um, Mm -hmm. I think at some point during this production, and same with Daryl Hannah. Fast forward a decade or so, Uma Thurman's trying to sue the studio for um, this incident, this car crash incident, um, but they would not share the footage of the set. And then Uma Thurman came out with this article talking about the car crash and talking about that. Her and Quentin reconciled. He apologized to her. He also helped get the footage from the studio so she could win her suit. Um, so those two have, again, reconciled. Um, and I think she has said she'd be open to working with him again. But definitely like an unfortunate like fact to come out like and watch this movie and know that, you know, Uma Thurman, who is literally carrying this movie on her back, um, was not made to feel safe uh, or supported throughout its production. And, and also to uh, unfortunate for Dale Hannah as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so clumsy transition out of that. Um, but for this movie, she did get paid twelve point five million per movie, got the bag. Um, she is one of the biggest movie stars in the world uh, and, and icons in the world at this point. Um, and then her career is just like weird. I was I was thinking about this also. I don't know if she made bad choices or if there were not the right roles for her or like what you do with an actor like Uma Thurman or how much like the wine scene stuff might have hurt her um, knowing all this all the power that he had. But after Kill Bill, she's in like Be Cool um, and like the producers uh, movies that you know, some people like she's in my super ex girlfriend, which is roundly panned. I don't know what really happened, but she's going to be in the old guard too. So I'm hyped for that. Uh, (laughs) Would love to see her and Charlie's there on on screen. 
She's in the the Lars Van Trier Nymphomaniac movie. Oh, yeah, that movie seems like something I would absolutely not want to watch, but I understand people are into it. She was also in the Matt Dillon movie, um, The House That Jack Built, which is also directed by Lars Van Trier. I don't know who's working with Lars Van Trier in 2018, but apparently these people are. Apparently Matt Dillon and Uma Thurman. Yeah, um, and Riley Keough. Like, it's a pretty popular movie. I didn't love it, but it is a movie that's like always suggested to me because I like sort of, um, I don't know, psychological horror movies. Um, I didn't care for it that much, but she is also in that movie. Interesting. There is a movie that is called The Kill Room. Uh, I'm in. It is starring Uma Thurman, Samuel L. Jackson, Joe Mangianello, and Maya Hawk. I'm in. Famously is her daughter. Um, the, most- the synopsis is the art world meets the underworld when a money laundering scheme accidentally turns a hitman into an overnight avant-garde sensation. Oh my God. Fuck yeah. Who is making that movie? I'm so in. Nicole Payon. Sure. Uh, she performed on the Big Gay Sketch Show. Great. Uh, she was a funnier die peep person. Oh, so maybe it's a comedy? Um, the most important thing that Uma Thurman worked on after these movies is being Maya Hawk's mother. Um, I love Maya Hawk. I love Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawk. I think they're both great. I think that they have created a beautiful specimen of a human being. Um, and there were so many times in Asteroid City where Maya Hawk would be shown in like just the right lighting. And I'm like, wow, that's Uma Thurman. But 24. Holy cow. Um, yeah, they've kind of created like a little clone of the two of them and uh, she's great. So I'm excited to see Maya Hawk do more movies. I'm excited to see Uma Thurman maybe do movies with her. What else did you look up about the movie? So this movie came after Jackie Brown, but it was like seven years in between. Six years in between. I was like, Quentin, what you doing? What are you up to? And actually, he... Apparently just wanted to enjoy his 30s. <laughs> How dare he? <laughs> he broke through with Reservoir Dogs, I believe, in his late 20s. I think he was 29. Um, and then on Dax Shepard's podcast, Armchair Expert, he had Quentin Tarantino on. And Tarantino said, quote, in my 30s, I looked better than I did in my 20s. And I had money and I was famous. So I decided I was going to live my 20s in my 30s for at least three or four years, uh, which good for him. But hey, we love someone enjoying the flowers of their success. Um, especially after making Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Jackie Brown. Uh, and he did a little bit of acting as well. He was, a, I think he was a bad guy on that show Alias for a minute there. Uh, the other thing I looked up is I wanted to know how the bride knew four years had passed just by looking at her palms. <laughs> That's really interesting. I was like, is that a thing? And no, it's just some movie bullshit to make you like, wow, she's really in tune with things. Yeah. I wanted to also know how they created the action sequences because... I'm going to butcher his name, but Yuan Wu Ping, uh, he helped coordinate and choreograph. He had worked on Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and the Matrix films. You could definitely see all that in the 88 sequence. Definitely. So many flourishes, so many styles of fighting where it's um, one-on-multiple, one-on-one, one-on-one on on a a handrail, the backlit blue silhouette scene. Um, All the choreography is beautiful. Uh, Uma Thurman crushes it as someone who 
doesn't have a traditional martial arts background and had to kind of pick all this up over the course of six months. Also to note, they filmed this after she had given birth. Like they halted production because she was pregnant. Women are phenomenal. That's so incredible. Also impressively, and I think I mentioned this before, but it's all practical effects. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no CGI in that other than to take out the wires that obviously they used. But um, if you like action, you'll probably be levitating um, by the end of that sequence. And then you have to see her and uh, Lucy Liu go one-on-one. That's always great. Best. The best scene. (laughs) And then this was something I thought I knew. I just looked it up to confirm it. But the Black Mamba moniker, which is the bride's codename as a deadly viper, that is also Kobe Bryant's nickname that he adopted in the lighter half of his career. And I wanted to make sure that those are tied in. And yes, he adopted the nickname after watching the movies. If you look at Kobe Bryant's shoes, they have the same logo. He said that like after watching the movie, after looking up more about the Black Mamba beyond L Driver's Wikipedia page reading, uh, that he was oh, like, I yeah. want to be, I am like that on the court. I want to be like that snake killer type. Love you, Kobe. R.I.P. That's really badass. Kobe, always an advocate for women everywhere, all the time, being badasses. And I love that he was just like, that's the fucking coolest person I've ever not met. <laughs> I want the same <laughs> nickname. Like, that's that's so great. Even down to the logo lifting. I, I was like, oh, my God, it's a Kobe sword. That's not how it works. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I also thought it was hilarious in volume one where Vivica Fox is like, I should have been Black Mamba. Yeah. <laughs> it's like fair. Yeah, valid. <laughs> that scene is so good because it's so like, like the colors are almost um, Edward Scissorhands. Like it's so sticky bright in there. And then so there's suburban. this like wild fight sequence. And to find out that like, you know, she stops, obviously, because of the daughter, and then the daughter watches, and then she's like, I give you permission later in life to come find yeah. me and kick my ass if this, like, sticks with you forever. And, uh, yeah, it's just great. It's a great way to start that film. Yeah, that scene also is sick because, I mean, just all the little touches, but when she reaches inside the cereal box for the gun, the cereal is literally kaboom. Mm-hmm. Um, so good. Sick. Speaking of cereal, silly rabbit. Do you have any questions for me left about this movie? Anything you didn't understand or just want to know more about? I mean, unless you have any outstanding thoughts about like Superman comics. (laughs) I Um, don't. (laughs) Which is the most like Quentin Tarantino. Like, let me just get a uh, let me just get a takeoff. Anyway, uh, which volume do you prefer? It is one. But it is not because I think volume two is bad. There are so many parts of Volume 2 that I adore, but I think Volume 1, for me, start to finish, is, like, near perfection. Yeah. And there are, like, a lot of aspects. Like, if if I had to, like, you know, just spitballing some numbers here, I'm going to say Volume 1, 98% yes. Then, like, Volume 2 is, like, 85% yes. That is like both passing grades. Both are like really fucking good. But I do just like one a little bit more than two. Which one did you like more? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm predisposed to like one a little bit more. It is the action heavier. It is the shorter and like higher paced film. And I think I liked one a little bit more than two strictly because being buried alive seems like a bottom two way to go. And I just felt so anxious during that scene. Even though I knew she was going to get out. I had seen that part before. 
But I think when I think of most of the iconic scenes or, or images or moments, it's literally the bride versus the crazy 88s. Especially like the snow scene outside also. And like, it's just, yeah. it's all good. Do you have any other questions or comments or uh, is this where you want to get your sound corner off? Yeah, this is uh, Welcome to Sound Corner with Amanda Liberto. So I am completely obsessed with the sound design in this film. I think the idea of being a Foley artist is something that is so unimaginable to me. Because I do not, I watch like so many videos of Foley artists making movies. So if people don't know, it's when they take inanimate objects and put them, record them at the same time a movie is playing so that they can enhance the sound of certain things. So like when swords go, it's usually like a thing whooshing by a microphone. And then that way you can dub it over and then it sounds super prominent. So that is obviously a huge part of this film, especially the Crazy 88 scene, Chapter 5. It is like full lead out the fucking wazoo. And I was so enthralled rewatching it about the sound design and there's so much of it throughout all of the film in volumes one and two and so all of that sound design is done by Wiley Stateman he has been a supervisor on 150 sound projects which has given him nine Academy Award nominations six BAFTA Award nominations three Emmy Award nominations and over 30 motion picture sound editing awards He received a Science and Technology Award from the Academy in 94 for creating AudioTrack's Advanced Data Encoding System, which is the ADE system of audio, which is like unheard of. So he is also an artist and a scientist of sound. And I think that is so cool. And I love that like he worked on this movie that sound is one of the things I always think of when I think of Kill Bill. And that also goes into the soundtrack, which we touched on a little bit earlier. RZA, prominently, but other members of the Wu-Tang Clan, did the official soundtrack for Kill Bill 1 and 2. Um, But it is these sort of one-off songs that I think about when I think of Kill Bill and always brings me back. So the Nancy Sinatra Bang Bang, which happens in the very beginning of the film. I think I even texted you while I was rewatching and I was like, it is electrifying to have the black and white bloody sequence into it's your baby shot. Bang bangs by Nancy Sinatra starts like it's so good. Um, the Quincy Jones Ironside, um, which is basically the Kill Bill fight theme. Um, it's only a, it's like 17 seconds. It's a few notes, but it plays every time that it's like is if you were playing Mortal Kombat and it would be like, showdown. Like, that's like when this like starts, you definitely would recognize it. And then the whistle, which is Bernard Herrmann's Twisted Nerve. Um, those three things are always what I think of when I think of Kill Bill and the soundtrack, even though it is like incredibly badass that RZA and Wu-Tang did the soundtrack for the official like Kill Bill movie. And they're so involved. Couldn't have put it any better myself. Thank uh, you. That was Amanda's sound corner. <laughs> and I to do. step off the soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any other uh, comments or questions that you wanted to get off? I think I, I talked a little bit about it and we've definitely like given her her flowers, but this is just Uma Thurman's like best fucking role. And like, she's so good in Pulp Fiction and there's an even a moment early. I think it's when she's 
talking to Vivica A. Fox and she says something about like being a square and like that is a an homage to her role in Pulp Fiction but it is like so clearly to me that like she is the bride and I just love that um something we talked about last time that we forgot to do this time is we were gonna do what's your favorite scene of the movie oh I'll go maybe first because I just sprung this on you but my favorite scene of Jackie Brown is definitely when the first time we see the exchange of money and we're watching it from Jackie Brown's perspective. She's like very violently like putting money in bags and like trying not to like make too much attention. And you kind of don't understand the whole ploy yet. Um, and then it continues to um, divulge and you understand. But that first time that we're seeing her switch the money is really cool and definitely was like stood out to me. I think my favorite scene in Kill either Kill Bill. Do I get to pick two or am I picking one? No, if you want to argue that it's one film, you get to pick Because it is. One. All right, so I pick, I mean, shit, it has to be. Well, I mean, it's hard to pick anything besides The Bride versus The Crazy 88s. I'd like to pick a dialogue scene. Intern- you know. The internal fight, not the snowy outdoor fight. Or that Correct, whole where se- she's sequence fi- no, where she's fighting the whole like all the whole army, and then ends with "If you have your limbs, they're mine now." Yeah, or and something she's like, like "Except that. you, Sophie." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the showstopper. I'm sure if I rewatch it, uh, there's probably a conversation or two in there that would would steal it for me. Um, but that has to be the one. Uh, would you watch this movie again? Yeah, sure. I don't know if I'll like watch it all in one chunk, but I'll. Tarantino's next movie comes up, I'll throw it into the rewatch cycle. Because it's like literally cut up into chapters, it's also a really good one to just like watch on YouTube. All right. So if I like the Kill Bill saga, the whole bloody affair, um, what are more movies like this that I could watch? So I'm just going to start with the obvious one. Seven Samurais is obviously a huge influence on this movie and it's like a world renowned cinema. Um, So I suggest that one. Um, another one I suggest is a movie from 2006 by Park Chan-wook, which is Lady Vengeance. Very similar plot. Um, she, A woman spends time in prison for murder she doesn't commit. She fantasizes about getting revenge and then eventually is let out into the world and so on and so forth. It is very crazy. It's a South Korean thriller, um, has a strong female lead role, Um I definitely would make a good double feature with this one. Um, Something that's pretty similar in a different sort of style, but same idea is a, you know, seven degrees of blind spotters is girl with a dragon tattoo. Um, Crazy, intelligent and badass woman plots revenge for all women everywhere. It's just, it's great. Um, And then I wanted to throw in a fourth, just as like a for, for shits and giggles. (laughs) I think we should just be watching 2000's Charlie's Angels. <laughs> That's a great shout. <laughs> Thank you. I've never seen them. No fucking way. In retrospect, it must be the catalyst event of my bisexuality. <laughs> <laughs> I have been thinking a lot about that. I have seen that movie so many times. And you know, the parts that stick out to me are not really the action sequences. <laughs> <laughs> but Lucy Liu is also in that movie. She yes. just gets to have fun. Like, who doesn't want to watch like three sexy, fun, 
female actresses of the 2000s in a very 2000s film just like kick some butt that's a great movie is it Man, like a great, like a great movie time. i don't know but is it a great movie absolutely <laughs> <laughs> i need to watch those i've been circling them for a while um in that same vein you should definitely watch mission impossible 5 rogue nation can't wait <laughs> <laughs> all right we did it one did less it. off of our list i think now we've both just got the same one remaining so maybe we'll watch uh, the hateful eight sometime in order to, yeah. to get them all you know we love completionism but we did want to end by doing our top five so i'll have you go first because i feel like i've been talking for a long time <laughs> so five to one uh number five reservoir dogs for all the reasons we had said uh, first one i ever watched catch me on the right day might be in the top three um some of the best uh tarantino conversations and most of it just happens in two rooms um number four once upon a time in hollywood a movie i i really love and i really loved when it came out and i really have loved it upon rewatch it was on the plain movie libraries for a while there so i would just fire up the first like two hours of it i don't love the end sequence because it is like such a push against like the calm soothing nature that we have uh, built throughout the beginning parts of the movie but i do understand its necessity in the, the film and there's lots of great performances and scenes in there number three pulp fiction i guess it's a hot take to have it down at three i don't know um maybe i should rewatch it i haven't seen it in a few years so i should revisit it but it's pulp fiction number two jackie brown for all the reasons that we had talked about i just love the energy love the vibe love all the performances and the low stakes and number one on the opposite end of uh, it having high stakes and out there performances and a sprawling story in Glorious Bastards. Um, just, you know, love the idea of killing some Nazis. Amanda, what is your top five? Very, very similar. Different order. Um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is going to take my fifth spot. Um, I also really like it. I actually like the last scene a lot um, as an student of the Manson murders. I don't know if that should be something yeah, that I, sounds right. I admit, but um, I was really intrigued by the whole situation. Um, four and three could switch any day of the week, depending on when you find me, but Pulp Fiction at four and Kill Bill at three is what I've got. I just, I mean, what more is there to say? Um, then I've got Reservoir Dogs at number two, which also at any day could be my number one, but it is really hard to take Inglorious Bastards out of my number one spot. It is so good. But I think I've probably rewatched Reservoir Dogs the most out of all the Quentin Tarantino films. Um, it's just like a movie I like to put on maybe like once every other year. It's a good one to revisit. But Glorious Bastards is like really phenomenal. And Christoph Waltz is so good. And it's just the type of performance I want Brad Pitt to be playing. And it's just it's great. When you were saying, what was the scene in Kill Bill that you thought was the best Quentin Tarantino? The chapter five. So that is when she enters um, the crazy eight, the crazy 88 all the way to the end of the film. Gotcha. I put up the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards as like Quentin's best. That's where he goes to the farm. And yeah. Shoshana. Yeah, that is really fucking good. I'm pulling this out of my ass, but I feel like there's a big like. Depending on how old you are, you either like have pulp like indelibly at number one, or you have Inglorious Bastards at number one. And I feel like it's just because it hit at the right time for whoever it is. Could be wrong, but I feel like that's just the case, at least with us. All right. Uh moving on to uh speaking of Brad Pitt, what movie <laughs> would Louis love more? Oh gosh. I'm gonna go 
Jackie Brown. I actually, I actually lean Kill Bill. I love it. Make your case. Because it's about getting back to a daughter. That's true. That's a really good point. And getting revenge. And I'm probably wrong. Louis probably find this way too violent unless over the course of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, he had watched a lot of the same films that Quentin Tarantino had watched. Who knows? Maybe they were in the grindhouses next to each other. Um, But I think that is, uh, you know, just a a story right at his cold, uh, questionably beating heart. (laughs) Excellent. All right. So next up, our theme is going to be Love on the Road. So Um, fucking hyped. I am trip. I am too. Um, my, I don't know if mine's mine's not really a road trip movie, but it is on a road. Um, and uh, so the movie that I will be having Zach watch is the Kate Winslet, Leo DiCaprio reunited movie, Revolutionary Road. And Zach, what am I watching? Amanda is watching Two for the Road, starring none other than Audrey Hepburn and Albert Finney. 1967 romance uh, sprawling time directed by Stanley Donnan. Amazing. What do you know about Revolutionary Road, if you know anything? Uh, I thought it was a road trip, so apparently nothing. I know it's Kate Winslet and Leo DiCaprio, and I think Michael Shannon like got nominated for an Oscar. Mm-hmm. Um, that's about it. What do you know about Two for the Road? I literally now know that it stars um, those two actors. So I literally know nothing. So I'm very excited. Revolutionary Road for me is I can't tell if people love it or hate it, but they talk about it all the time. I love it. Um, So I'm excited to rewatch it. It is sad, Um, but it's going to (laughs) be it's going to be great. Um, All right. So aside from those movies, Zach, what is currently on your watch list? Um, I really want to watch Joyride. Um, it's a movie starring, among other people, Stephanie Hsu and I think Ashley Park. Um, just seems like a movie that speaks to me. Also, I'm excited for uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. <laughs> Fucking hyped for that film. I've uh, been wanting a good TMNT film for about a decade and a half at this point. Uh, so, you know what? At the end of the day, shout out to Spider-Verse. And then lastly, I think I might have had this on a previous watch list. I still haven't watched it. Is Con Air. Um, I have watched in the last, let's say, four months, Face Off and uh, The Rock. And so I've really just had a moment with Nicolas Cage in the 90s. And Con Air is like the last of that trio of his late 90s action like blockbusters. And I think The Beverly is showing it at some point in August. So I might try to see it in the theater because that just feels like the right avenue to watch it. What about you? So I'm also watching... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. I'm going to a screening of it so that I can write a review. Um, Zach was giving me a very quick education before we started recording. Um, I also haven't been in the theater. I've had a really busy month, so I haven't really gone to the theater. So I've missed a ton. Like I missed Joyride, Past Lives, the new Indiana Jones movie, the new Mission Impossible movie. So I, I need to like get back in the theater. So that's part of my goal. Um, and then because of Barbie. I haven't seen Nights and Weekends, which is uh, Greta Gerwig's first directorial movie. And um, definitely, I like everything that she's ever worked on. So I I definitely want to get that one off the list as well. All right. Well, thank you all for listening so much. Always appreciate it. You can find a new episode of Blind Spotters on the second Tuesday of the month. 
can follow the podcast on Instagram at BlindSpottersPod and at The Sinking Ship that is Twitter at BlindSpotters. Zach, where can people find you online? You find me on Twitter at Zach Pocklum, going down with that ship. And as always, you can find me on Letterboxd. What about you? You can send me any compliments across all platforms at Amanda Luberto, including the sinking ship that is Twitter. (laughs) I'm still there. (laughs) Love it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm going to go enjoy the rain. (laughs) I'm going to go stand outside. (laughs) Congrats to you. You did it. Thank you. We did it. The bride did it. The bride did it. Amazing. Get out of here. Bye. Lewis. <laughs> it's too long. Awful audio. <laughs> <laughs>